I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, it's Alva here. Westminster Reimagined is back. A special series that looks at how politics works and how we can make it better. Over the next five weeks, we'll be joined by a very special guest host. He's a legendary writer, political satirist, broadcaster, director and creator of brilliant TV comedies, including a particular favourite among our podcast listeners, The Thick of It, Armando Anucci. Hi, Armando. Great to have you back on the podcast. Hi. Yes, it's, it's good to be back. We did four episodes in season one trying to get to grips with politics and how we can improve what isn't working. And doing just four was absurd, really. So we're going to see if we can do it uh, with five this time. <laughs> just up by one. Yeah, yeah it was quite a, lot to, it. <laughs> quite a lot to tackle. And of course, last season, we looked at certain issues, including one episode on the issue of accountability or lack thereof in politics. And in the past six months since we were last together, quite a lot has happened. I'm wondering just briefly what you've made of the past yes, six months. Yes, I think we did our first uh, podcast the week that Matt Hancock resigned because he'd breached the guidelines in distancing. And that seems like a sort of giddy golden age of decorum, <laughs> given what's happened ever since. <laughs> We've had the whole of Partygate. We've had the, well, actually, started by... The Owen Patterson being found to have breached guidelines and the result being that the government just tried to train, change the rules rather than enact any kind of penalty on his behaviour. That then resulted him resigning, a by-election which the government lost. We've had the ongoing COVID situation, the emergence of party gate, which I'll, I'll return to in a second. And of course, we we talk in the middle of a, a major international, the biggest international crisis to hit us since the Second World War. So clearly season one didn't sort things out. Partygate for me was, it's interesting why that seems to have touched a nerve. I think it's not just because the events portrayed in it occurred at a time when we were all trying to do our best to abide by the rules, you know, for, the, for a common good. But I think the, the insight it gave us into what was actually going on in Downing Street. So all through it, I kept asking myself, you know, is this normal? It's not just the breaching of the guidelines. It's the drinking all day and every day. You know, is this normal? And therefore, asking myself the bigger question, you know, is this the politics that we deserve? Is this, is this, is this normal or is this atypical? So I think this season we shall start, you know, pulling apart little aspects of democracy and parliamentary behaviour and how White House works and just holding up to light and seeing whether or not they can be improved. 
This series will run on Wednesdays, so on top of our regular podcasts on Tuesdays and Fridays, you'll be getting an extra dose of the New Statesman podcast for the next five weeks. So, Armando, shall we get on with today's episode? I think nothing should stop us. Hello, I'm Alva. And I'm Armando. In our first episode of Westminster Reimagined, we'll be joined by Professor of Anthropology at SOAS, University of London, Emma Crewe, and MP for the Scottish National Party, Annam Kazar, to discuss if government and Westminster works. We'll unpack the argument that this is how things have always worked and ask, is there another way of doing things? So Armando, we have, I think, a great panel of uh, two two really good guests to help us shed light on the way things work behind yes, the scenes. Yes, we're, we're going to be joined by someone who has recently arrived at Westminster as an MP and, and somebody who has or did embed themselves as an anthropological observer on how Westminster works. Emma Crowe is a professor of anthropology based at SOAS University of London, working on politics, governance and identity in Parliament. Her ethnographic studies of the House of Lords and the House of Commons were the first on the UK Parliament. And she spent years embedded in both the Lords and the Commons, enjoying uniquely privileged access to the inner workings of the legislature. And her latest book, An Anthropology of Parliament's Entanglements in Democratic Politics, was published last year. And Annam Kazar is the SNP MP for Airdrie and Shots in Scotland and Scotland's second female Muslim MP. Before becoming an MP, she was a modern studies teacher. After her victory, she pledged to be a role model for other minorities and to fight for Scottish independence. In her maiden speech, she complained that the House of Commons was more rowdy than her former pupils and has questioned the value of the House of Lords as an unelected, crony-stuffed second chamber. Anna and Emma, thank you both so much for joining us. Thank you so much. To just get started, Anna, you were very recently elected and you were also elected in a by-election. I'm just wondering if you could just tell us what that was like arriving in Parliament having just been elected. It was a strange experience. I got elected in the early hours of Friday morning. When you get elected, they just hand you an envelope to, and it says, to the new MP. I opened it up and said, right, OK, you're going to get contacted tomorrow morning. Make sure you're free and we'll sort out your travel. You're getting sworn in on Monday. And this was the early hours of Friday morning. I still had to contact my school and speak to them and say, obviously they knew I was running in an election, and say, well, look, heads up, I'm, I'm not going to be in school today. And um, no, it's been an absolute whirlwind um, since my election. And it's not even been a year. And I feel that there's been a lot that I have learned about this new place. I've heard that for... Uh, people elected on a by-election, it's particularly hard because you're not elected at the same time as a whole new group of, of people, so that you're almost like turning up at school halfway through term as the new person, not it, knowing anyone. And that's really funny that you use that phrase, because as a former teacher, that's exactly how I've explained it to people. Mm-hmm. When you start the new school year and you've got your friends, but someone turns up halfway through and they're trying to learn it. And the thing with Westminster is that the, the language is so different to the language that we use in our normal day to day sentences. Mm-hmm. That that's something new that I've had to learn in the parliamentary procedure is something that I've had to learn. And if you come in with a cohort of people, you're all learning together. Mm-hmm. But for me, it's been a process of, of trial and error. And uh, did, did you find it user friendly? No. 
Okay. Um, I would say that the <laughs> and I can expand on that no, yeah, for please you. Please do, yeah. <laughs> so the language that is used in Parliament is not the language that we use on our day-to-day basis. So if I stand up in the chamber and I want to refer to someone, I have to call them the honourable member for whatever their constituency is. But even at that, when bills are printed or when you're looking at committee papers, so much of the language is, is it's like a special club, right? And if you've been brought up with that language around you, you're part of that special club. But if you've not been brought up with that language around you, it can be difficult to navigate and break into. Mm-hmm. But then equally, even just general parliamentary procedures, right? Because I thought you'd have a debate and you go in and you speak in that debate. But no, 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 you've got government debate, you've got opposition day debates, you've got adjournment debates, you've got Westminster Hall debates. But even Westminster Hall debates, there's different types of debates. And... Whilst the language is broadly similar, each debate has different rules in them. Right. And you have to know what the rules are when you go in. I'm just bringing you in, Emma. Is that, is that your experience watching like whole years or whole groups of, of MPs on elections? I have noticed that the experience is very different for different MPs. Mm-hmm. So I'm interested in what it's like to be part of a small party because I think that can be very supportive. You get to know the whole group quite well but then you also have quite a lot of pressure on you because you've got to speak all the time because you've got to be a specialist quite quickly whereas you know if you're part of a really big party you're not necessarily going to get on the front bench for years so I think the experience is very different if you depending on your party it's very different if your constituency your constituency is far isn't it from from London so that creates a lot of pressure so you know if your constituency is down the road that's a lot easier but going back to the To the building itself, I have found that people react very differently to the building. So if you've gone to a boarding school, a public boarding school, or if you've gone to Oxford or Cambridge University, even the the kind of gothic building is a bit more familiar. It's less less strange. And equally, you know, the, the extraordinary number of rules and the formality of the rules and the reprimands when you break them. So I remember when I went into the House of Lords the first time, I was absolutely terrified, even though actually I come from a relatively privileged background. But nonetheless, I was particularly frightened of the doorkeepers. And they were mm-hmm. always telling me off for being in the wrong place, for wearing brown shoes on a Friday, yes. for talking to the wrong person at the wrong time, for getting in the way of an important person. So how can you break out? Because you, you were saying that you, you have to kind of, it, it's left to yourself to try and work it out and try and follow follow the rules from what other people are doing and then see if you can fit in. But there must be also an urge to to not fit in in terms of not want to have to conform to these rules and regulations that have been around for centuries. So, I mean, I am relatively young. I'm a woman. I am of colour and I have a strong Scottish accent. So I think I already stick out like a, a sore thumb. And um, part of it is wanting to, to stick out and not conform. But part of it is I have an important job to do. I have been elected by the people of Airdrie and Shots. And it's my responsibility to go into the chamber and speak on their behalf and lobby on their behalf on the issues that they're contacting me about. So there definitely is a balance. And also in terms of the support that, that's there at Parliament, one thing I think is really important and it's not spoken about is how great the House staff are. The Speaker's Office, for example, are so supportive and if at any time I've had to go in and been like, look, 
well, for example, last night I had my very first adjournment debate and I had to learn the processes because it's slightly different. You don't have to say certain things or you do have to say certain things and you only have a certain amount of time. But I went up and spoke to them and they were like, well, this is what you do, this is what you don't do. So there are people there to keep you right and like the house staff are great. But at the absolute heart of it, it does feel like if you're not part of this club, if you don't know the rules and the mannerisms, then it's difficult to to become embedded in that. Not that I necessarily want to. And and Emma, then what did you find? Did you find that people in the end is it is it just easier to try and follow the rules than than to try and carve out a, a niche as someone who's slightly outside that 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 set of kind of conformity? Well, the, actually, the rules are changing all the time. So this idea of a kind of fossilized parliament is an exaggeration. So the rules of procedure are constantly under review. There's a procedure committee in both the two houses, and they're constantly looking at whether or not to stay, change the standing orders or... Just to come in on that, I, I would disagree, Emma. I don't think parliament is changing, and I think there's a reluctance to change. So when I was elected, we had a hybrid parliament, and we had chamber via Zoom. You could apply to speak... And it was a choice, and this is the really important point, it was a choice to go back to the normal way that we've done things. During hybrid, MPs, as I understand, before I was elected, they voted on their phones, and then it changed to proxy voting, but it was a change to to go back to traipsing through a lobby. And I do not understand, pandemic or no pandemic, I don't understand how that's a viable use of MPs' time, traipsing through a lobby. And a specific point I want to bring up is one of my colleagues. So Amy Callahan is the M- SNP MP for Eastern Bartonshire. She has this amazing story to tell of getting through teenage cancer and while well, she was elected, suffered a brain hemorrhage. And she has spoken repeatedly and I've spoken in the chamber and said, well, look, you're not going to change everything, but at the very least, give people who ha- who require medical grounds to have proxy voting, give that to them. But till today, Amy is still having to go against doctors' orders in order to vote at Parliament. So, yes, there's some changes, but I would say they're happening at a very, very slow level and not fast enough. I agree. And I think it is harder to change things if you're in the smaller parties. So, for example, it is MPs in the two big parties who want to keep voting in the lobbies, not electronic voting, because it's when they can talk to their their front benches and influence them. And even if, you know, if their party is in government, then they can even get access to the ministers and the prime minister. And I mean, I remember stories of uh, some ministers during the Labour government having kind of post-its like a kind of Greek wedding, you know, with all the pound notes or, or whatever, uh, Greek equivalent, all over their jackets or dresses because there are endless MPs asking them to pay attention to particular problems that have often been raised by their constituents. But that doesn't necessarily work for many MPs. I absolutely agree with you. But I think the importance of recognising that change does happen gives one some hope and some incentive for trying to change things. Because it's easy otherwise, I think, to kind of fall into a state of despair and just think, well, you know, the building looks old and it is extremely unfriendly and it is very difficult to change things. But it's not, it's not the officials 
it's it's the MPs themselves who are often very conservative with a little C and and cling on to the way things are done because it suits some people. It suits some people. And is there a familiarity as well? Is it do some people settle into that kind of grove and think, you know, this you know, I can, I can keep this up for some time and you know, I, I, I can get used to this. I think that's true. I mean with it's interesting um, looking at the restoration and renewal program. So it's very expensive to stay in the building while it's being renovated. And and I think people tend to assume, oh, God, politicians are just so tradition bound, they won't move. But I've got a theory that life is so chaotic as a politician and so pressured and so kind of increasingly fragmented that the building itself is one of the few continuities in your life. So I think politicians are shapeshifters because you've got, you know, you're talking to a constituent one minute, you're talking to a journalist the next minute, you've got to continually adapt to these different audiences. But the 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 building is like a rock, it stays there. And I think it it's actually quite nerve wracking for people to think that they might be moved out of this extraordinary building. And, you know, where's their rock? Right. Where's their sense of continuity? Hi, Anoush here. We've got a special offer for Westminster Reimagined listeners. You can subscribe to the New Statesman for just a pound a week for 12 weeks. Just go to newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. And you can check out all our podcasts, including audio long reads and world review at newstatesman.com forward slash podcasts. We'll be right back. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. I suppose my question for you, Emma, and and then kind of for you, Annam, as well, is whether this affects the kind of laws that get made or the quality of our policy making, that whether these things that we've been talking about mean that MPs do their jobs less well. Do you sort of, because I suppose it actually doesn't matter to, you know, or it only matters to a small degree if people feel personally uncomfortable doing the job, but they're still able to be effective politicians. Like, Annam, I don't know what your experience is of that, but you come up against these challenges, but ultimately you don't feel like they're an obstacle to achieving what you want to achieve from the role. Um, do you think that it is actually harming the standard of politics that we get? I'm looking forward to the possibility we might disagree about this because I actually think that it is really important that we have a stronger respect for the rule of law and a kind of the rule of rule, if you like, the the procedural rules than the current uh, administration. So actually, I think we've seen really, really a worrying kind of, I don't know if you could even call it a kind of ethical collapse in in the recent years. When I was embedded, I've in the called House of... it an ethical rot. So, uh, oh, okay, yes. yeah, I, I suppose <laughs> I'm an word ethical so. and some kind of um, yeah. destruction. Yeah, is, is, yeah, exactly. Uh, when I was watching Parliament, it was much more kind of orderly, mm. and actually, I had huge respect for that because 
you know, politics is about the fact that we're all very diverse. We have these huge disagreements. We have conflicts of interests. And we need to have ritual, funnily enough. I mean, people don't generally think of it like that, but I'm an anthropologist, so I guess I would. But in the ritual, you have these rules. And actually, you need people to stick to them. You need politicians and, and the speaker to take those rules incredibly seriously. So you change them with great care. You definitely do need to change them. But I would like a kind of respect for rules, but a far, far more progressive attitude towards the emergencies that are facing us in society. So, you know, let's be really, really radical about the fact that we've got climate breakdown and we've got a mental health crisis and these things. You bring those massive subjects up and I just wonder whether we have a, the parliamentary system is adaptable enough to move quickly on, on things like that, or, or whether because of the rules and the procedures, actually, you know, the chances of you to make a sudden change immediately is, is, is very hard. Well, funnily enough, I was talking about this with some people from Number 10 yesterday, okay, and yeah. um, <laughs> they were saying that, you know, that Parliament managed to pass something like 11 bills in a day mm -hmm. at the outbreak of World War Two. that there's always been within the system the possibility to be agile and to adapt, and they haven't been as agile recently with COVID, even though they were a bit quicker, but actually kind of within the flexibility of the Constitution, you kind of can adapt to, to crises. So I wonder why that's yeah. happened then, that, yeah. that, that, that think the pace has slowed down, that there is a kind of, it seems to be sludgier that, than it was. I suppose just like one step back, I'm really interested in, because we have a, a new MP in our midst, I'm really interested in, just because we were talking about how there are aspects of the current system that can feel unwelcoming, how it's felt for you, Annam, if you feel like, those are difficult, but you can still do your job? Or have there been moments where actually you feel less able to be an effective politician because of aspects of this place being unwelcoming? Yeah, so I've actually had uh, an experience quite recently that kind of follows that. So I am a young woman of colour. In fact, from Scotland, I'm the only MP of colour. And you know, I am there to represent my constituents of Airdrie and Shots, but I do feel this slight pressure that I'm there also to represent the different demographics that, that look or talk like me. And I go into Parliament and I wear my Western and inverted commas clothes on a near daily basis. And just a couple of weeks ago, I went into Parliament and wore a shalvar kameez, so it's a traditional Pakistani dress. And I wear my pass and I've got it in my hand. And while I'm wearing Western and inverted comma clothes, I don't get stopped. But on this one day, whilst I had Shalvar Kameez, twice in one day by two different sets of met Metropolitan Police, I was stopped and asked to show my ID. And the first time I just pushed it to a side mm -hmm. and went on with my day. But the second time, it was at the exact same location between Central Lobby and the Chamber. The second time... I so this was, like, was inside the building? This was inside right. the building, between Central Lobby and the Chamber. Yeah. And the second time, I turned around and I was like, no, this is, this is now a recurring theme. And one day, by two different sets of Met Police, and I walked through to the, to the other side, and there was doorkeepers there. And I'm very strong, I would like to think. I've dealt with a, a number of different uh, racial abuse cases throughout my life. But at that point, I just felt so alienated, because I do look a little bit different to most MPs out there. And that in itself is alienating. 
But to be stopped by the police twice in one day and asked to show my ID just further perpetuates that stereotype of I don't look like a politician and I don't belong there. Now, after that, I got really upset and I was with doorkeepers and um, I'll be honest, I started crying because I shouldn't be made to feel like that in my workplace. And I've raised it with the speaker and the police and they've been very supportive of me. But the stark reality is, is that still that notion and idea is if you're not the stereotype of a politician, that you do not belong there. That is so troubling. And just to explain to people, you would have had an MP's pass, wouldn't you, which is very recognisable. Yeah, so the the MP pass and the lanyard, you can tell at my off that I am an MP. To be fair, I did have it in my hand. But still, the fact that there was nothing different, Emma, to any other day. It was just that my clothes looked a little bit different, so I looked more ethnic, in inverted commas. As- Sadly, I've heard stories like this of of even people being challenged by politicians, by other politicians and saying, uh, sorry, this is an an MP's lift, for example, so you'll have to leave. Yeah, that happened to me. Oh, no. Oh, yeah, it was by by another MP. We there for a year. (laughs) Oh, I know. It's not even a year. And I wonder also whether there's a sense of, perhaps, Emma, you can pick up on this, there is a sense of some people, it's like imposter syndrome, which is a lot of people arriving there thinking, what am I doing here? Why? How did I get here? And and if if you are you know especially in your early days there confronted with rules and legislations that that seem to be stopping you, whether you get whether it's, there's a danger you get swallowed up by it. That you I think imposter syndrome is incredibly common, but it's also quite uneven. And in a way, if you think of Parliament as a microcosm of society, then the the inequalities you see in society show up in Parliament in a way in a magnified form because there's so much competition between people. So I think imposter syndrome often is more acute if you're somebody who's faced inequality in life generally, or if you, for example, if you've been the victim of racism. Uh, You know, this is extremely undermining, isn't it? You know, we're all trying to kind of feel confident, but that kind of onslaught on your identity is is really, really hard. And, And you even get it in the House of Lords, which is kind of a courtly place, but I was told by people in this um, house where, you know, there's a sort of ethos of being very egalitarian, not with the rest of society, obviously, but between the peers. But then when people would rank each other and kind of judge each other and talk about who was who was good at performing in the chamber, mm-hmm. when they weren't, I noticed that sometimes gender or race would come into the explanation if you were a person of colour or if you, were, if you were a woman, like they'd say, oh, yeah, she sounds like a fishwife or... Well, he, yeah, he's black, he's, he's chippy or something like that. So I think racism takes many forms, doesn't it? And people assume it's simple. It's actually really complex. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Gone are the days when someone would outward, outwardly just make a racist remark towards you. It can feel so institutionalised. And it goes back to, Armando, what you were talking about, is that idea of imposter syndrome. Mm. And actually, if you do look a little bit different in comparison to all of your colleagues, then you really are thinking, not just do I belong here, but do I deserve to be here? Am I good enough to and be also, here? And also, are they accepting me here? Exactly. And are, are they accepting the fact that actually I was elected and I have as much right to be there 
as they do. Did you feel confident that, because you, you, you said you mentioned it to the speaker, did you feel confident that there was a sort of system in place where that kind of experience that you had could could be dealt with? Or do you feel that it's, you know, your words have just gone into a big pool of <laughs> never to be dealt with again? So, look, I'm the first person to complain in the chamber if I feel like the speaker's not called me and he's being unfair. But at this point, I have to say that um, Lindsay was, was great. He was very, very supportive of me. And I said to them, well, look... What I don't want is for you guys to do some sort of diversity training and a tick box exercise and pat yourself on the back because that's not how this can work and I'm not going to allow you to work it like this. And they were very, very open to that and they've said that they'll, they'll investigate and have those discussions. So I do feel supported from the speaker, okay. which is right. really important. I'm really interested in another pressure that I think you have to deal with where again going back to the fact that we've got these inequalities in society uh, which you would have had personal experience of so when you're representing your constituency how do you handle the difficulty of like where you focus at any time where who do you prioritize who do you talk to and and how does it relate to how you may feel that other people say in Scotland maybe who are people of color or are young people or whatever it or people who share your identity they may be claiming your time and attention as well. So how on earth do you deal with all this multitude of voices? Yeah, of course. I mean, first and foremost, I'm elected as the Member of Parliament for Airdrie and Shots. And I think we need to have a wider discussion about what the role of an MP actually is. Is it voting? Is it debating? Is it being in the constituency? I'm not convinced that we spend enough time in our constituencies. I think far too much time is spent wasted in Westminster. But um, on that, yeah, you're right, I wear different hats. And so often I get contacted by people. I mean, I have had a lovely email just after I got elected from one of my former pupils who said, Miss, I watched your maiden speech with my little sister who's seven years old. And we just got so emotional because for her at seven years old to see another woman of colour being elected was just so, it's so different to the norm. And thank you so much. And I got really emotional because I was one of my former pupils. But even last week, I um, wrote this wee card to a girl called, also called Adam, who's seven years old, because she got in contact with me saying, you look like me. Like that, that, and at seven years old, she's able to identify that actually I'm someone in politics. And I mean, I will not be the first one to jump to the defence of a conservative, but actually, there's a couple of people that have inspired me in my life. And I'd say one of them was Mohammed Sarver, who, of course, was the first Pakistani Muslim MP to be elected, but also Saida Warsi, so Baroness Warsi was the first Muslim in cabinet and I remember that iconic picture of her outside 10 Downing Street wearing a shalwar kameez and I was in my teens, I had gone through 9-11, we'd gone through the Iraq war but I still saw someone that looked like me and I think that is such a powerful tool because not the, the population is, is majority women and we've got an increase in number of people of colour. And if the politics doesn't represent the people, then what are we doing? I want to go back to uh, what I said at the start, the, the fact when I went around the Scottish Parliament, realising how kind of much more open it felt in terms of its kind of ambience. And it may be because we had to start with scr from scratch with the Scottish Parliament and indeed the Welsh Assembly. 
you know that was something that that is was built from nothing and is part of the problem that Westminster's been around for centuries now and it's very difficult to switch it off and and start it afresh you know you've got this building that's ancient I I sort of hope they do move for the refurbishment because it might just I did like that like you I I did think that through the covid period when everything went on zoom and you could vote remotely and so on that that would be something that stayed because it felt so not revolutionary, just just contemporary, really. It makes sense, <laughs> though. Felt, That's the thing. It felt so normal. It makes sense. It, it seems weird to step back from, from the normal. I'm torn between agreeing with you on the one hand, but also on the other hand, it is really difficult to, sh- to shrug off the attachment to that building that one can develop. And so another alternative is to look more at what you were talking about, Anon, which is, so how do MPs relate to people within their constituency and also to other people who they are in touch with because they get very passionate or they're building on their existing yes. expertise in education yes. or whatever it is. But also look at what the select committees are doing. So the select committees came from nowhere. You know, they've yes. only been existing for 40 years and they've already doing outreach, doing doing really amazing consultation with children in the case of the Select Committee on Education, for example. So they go around the country, they go, they go even overseas. And a lot of that we don't see. So I followed a little bit of law, for example. So most political scientists and legal scholars will look at huge tranches of, of legislation to try and figure out what's going on. But I, I did the opposite. I went for depth. So I followed 250 words for two years. And I literally observed and and observed thousands of people talk to, to a few hundred. And one of the things that was fascinating was that civil society organizations had a massive impact, but it didn't show up in the text. So if you look at the text, the final amendment was made by this amazing peer, Baroness Butler Sloss, who's like, you know, president of the family court. And it was her amendment. But behind that, it was actually drafted by a, a paralegal in a children's charity in central London. And and these civil society organizations and children's charities were in touch with, with the parties in both houses, working beavering away. In, in, and we just don't see that. So there's yes, a lot that yes. goes on behind the scenes. But at the absolute heart of it, right, I would go back to what is the job of an MP and what is it that my constituents want from me? My constituents want me to vote. They want me to debate, yes, but ultimately they want me in the constituency speaking to them. Last week I had a cost of living surgery in ASDA, right? I was there for an hour and it was back to back. People knew because I'd advertised it, but people also just, as they were doing their shopping, they just dropped by and saw my big big poster and said, all right, well, you're the MP. Can we sit and speak to you about X, Y, and Z? That hour of my time, I picked up casework on health, social work, cost of living. And I genuinely do feel as if that one hour out in Asda was a better use of my time than an hour traipsing through the Mm -hmm. lobbies. But as you were saying, Emma, it's different if you're in one of the larger parties and also particularly the party that's in power because then isn't a lot on a lot of backbenchers kind of split if they if they are of a younger generation are they tempted to calculate whether they should be spending time in their constituency or whether they should be actually putting themselves about in order to be noticed and and get promotion and get a job in government and get 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 higher office 
I think it's a really interesting point and I take great joy in watching some of the Conservative MPs to see how they interact okay, in committees. <laughs> um, no, but I just think it fascinating in watching them interact in committees with one another and with other parliamentarians mm-hmm. and I've been there for less than a year and you can quite quickly tell which ones want to be noticed in order to get promotion and I mean, and again, it goes back to the heart of what's the role of an MP. And there's a big debate, as you say, about, I mean, some people think that more time spent with constituents is the role of the, is sort of trespassing on the role of the of the councillors and that this is just glorified social work. I don't agree. I absolutely agree with you, Annam. I actually think even with the people who are in the big parties, it it, it brings MPs down to earth. But also as forces... a voter, you want to know that you have some connection to to Parliament, don't exactly, you? Exactly, exactly. And, and also, I think even government MPs who interact with their constituents uh, understand some of the impact of the legislation they've passed or, or the difficulties with the administration. So I think, it's, I think it's a really important role. And, and last thing on, on, on that is there is a pattern that I've noticed whereby the women MPs feel much more comfortable when it gets really distressing. So I've witnessed a lot of surgery meetings and they're often very, very complex issues. Mental illness shows up to a staggering degree. And it, it, there is an interesting pattern. I mean, it's not very surprising because women are socialized. We're kind of socialized to listen and we find that kind of emotional turbulence, I think, kind of a little bit easier. So the only MPs I found who delegated it almost all to caseworkers was, was a few blokes. Nearly all MPs do some, but it, there's some interesting patterns there that I think really... We're, we're going to have to wrap up in a second. So I'm wondering to, to, pull, I know, so to pull you both back <laughs> for just one final thought. We've talked a bit about, you know, things that don't go so well in Parliament. And I've just be, it'd be nice to end on maybe just one brief thought from both of you on a small change that could be made that would make our politics a tiny bit better. You from experience and you from all of your experience observing many, many politicians. And would you like to go first? So politics should be kinder, of course. But I think to help us do our jobs as members of parliament is to actually have an open and frank conversation in about tradition and how much of that is important in 2022. And yes, you can respect the tradition of how parliament has run over all these years, but the hybrid system showed us that MPs can vote on their phones or have proxy votes and they can speak online. When President Zelensky came and addressed us two weeks ago, he the overnight they introduced TVs in the chamber. It's completely possible. It's a political choice to not make it more accessible. And I think if we had that change, it would better our politics and open the potential of having more different people who look a little bit different becoming elected. I completely agree with that. And I would add as the second priority to develop a much more sophisticated approach to knowledge and how it's handled. So I don't think we live in a post-truth world. I, live, I think we live in a world which is totally confused about knowledge. And I think we all need to have a really, really good look at, at how we value knowledge. So the the knowledge of lawyers and and scientists is kind of venerated. 
but actually, we are beginning to take personal testimony a bit more seriously, for example. But what doesn't happen enough in government, but also in parliament, including even in select committees, and they're the real experts in dealing with knowledge, and even in constituencies, I think we all need to think much harder about how knowledge is produced, how it circulates, how it gets twisted and distorted, when it's being used for, for political gain, and when it's people genuinely trying to inquire into what on earth is going on. And we need to have a little bit of tolerance for the fact that there is inevitable political spin, but we need to be totally unforgiving when politicians knowingly lie and pretend mm. they're not. So I think we really need to have a good think about knowledge. I think that's a, a good, a tough note to end it on. Yes. <laughs> Thank you both very much. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. That was such a good conversation. So, Armando, that was a really interesting chat. Do you feel like we got to the bottom of it? It certainly touched on various things that I thought, yes, what I was asking myself, yes, why don't we do that? Like the, you know, bringing in the screens, the idea of, of, of the use of knowledge. I mean, it connects with the screens because actually Parliament could benefit from the witness and advice of many, many people outside Parliament. You know, the, it, the, we see on our screens the, uh, the American select committees when they hold the leaders of such and such Facebook up and quiz them. And I know we get that in the select committees, but actually... If we felt, okay, if we can't bring the build, if we can't make the building more accessible, can we make the idea of parliament more accessible by having more participation from outside? I think we didn't touch on um, the rule breaking that does take place in government. The fact that, you know, parliament sets the rules. But if, uh, if an MP breaks rules like, like Owen Paterson, the idea then is to change the rules to let them off rather than to penalise <laughs> that, that idea. And, and um, I'm sure we could do a whole podcast on Partygate alone and, and all the questions it raises. Yeah, and I think the thing I was really struck by was that, I mean, there were lots of things that we looked at, little obstacles to MPs doing their jobs well, but it seemed as though the the main way in which change happens is just by MPs like Annam Kazar taking on quite a lot of personal difficulty to sort of trailblaze for more people like her to come on through. I think, you know, in a way that's a great thing, but also kind of rubbish that there isn't well, a, we, a more systematic way of letting that happen. We don't want to put people from wanting to go into Parliament if they find out that quite a lot of your work in Parliament is is trying to work out how it works, how you fit in, and, and being able to kind of get round those obstacles. So that's it for now. Next week, I'll be handing over to my colleague, Anush Kellyan, who will host our second episode with Armando. That's right. On the next episode, Anush and I will be speaking to the economist Gary Stevenson and grassroots campaigner Rosamund Kissy Debra about making change outside of the Westminster bubble. I'm really looking forward to it. Until then, thank you for joining us on the New Statesman podcast. Goodbye. Goodbye. You've been listening to Westminster Reimagined on the New Statesman podcast with me, Alva Ray, and our special guest host, Armando Iannucci. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and don't forget to subscribe. You can watch video from this podcast on the New Statesman's YouTube channel and on the New Statesman website. This episode was produced by Adrian Bradley and Mae Robson. Our executive producer is Chris Stone. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.